Just to give you a little background, where the lectionary text for last Sunday, uh, the gospel reading, was found in, in Matthew chapter 23. And the interesting thing about this point in Jesus' ministry is it's his last week. He is uh, only two days out from uh, what we would know as Palm Sunday, uh, and he's only a few days away from the cross. So knowing that that is what Jesus is, knowing where Jesus is in his, his life and in his journey, and knowing that Jesus knows what is coming... Um, he is giving some final instructions to his disciples. And, and in this text, it says to the crowds and the disciples, which is, I like when uh, verses and sections of scripture begin like that, because it is a message that is for those who are already believers and those who are not yet believers. And granted, every verse of scripture could be for those who are believers and those who are not yet. But especially this text, Jesus is speaking to those who have not yet decided to become followers of Christ. And at the same time, he's giving instructions to his disciples. And he's talking about the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and how they sit in Moses' seat. And, and some of the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they were in full-time positions, full-time uh, religious leadership. But other teachers of the law uh, may have had other careers, may have had other things going on, but they were still leaders in the religious community. And so he's talking about the message and the important message, the law of Moses and the seat of Moses they sit in and how these teachers of the law and the Pharisees have a very important message to proclaim. But then Jesus is going on to warn the crowds and the disciples, as important as their message is, do not do as they do. We'll find out why in a minute. And then he talks about how they put phylacteries wide phylacteries on their arms. And what that is, is still in Orthodox Jewish tradition, uh, uh, especially the, the rabbis will put uh, scriptures, boxes, a box, and there'll be scripture in, in the box. And they'll wrap it to the arm and have seven strands around the arm and the, the box, the scriptures, fo- is uh, facing their heart. And then they'll wear another one on their head. And, and the heart is obviously the heart of emotion. And then the head is the, the seat of, of intellect. And so they have the scriptures actually on their bodies at different times during the day, except on the Sabbath, the Shabbat, or on high holy days. It's a very sacred and really powerful meaning of having the scripture close to their heart and close to their mind. And so when Jesus talks about the phylacteries, that's, that's what he's talking about. And then he talks about tassels and, and how they wear their tassels. And, and then later, as he's, he's warning the crowds and the disciples not to be like them, he he says, don't be like the rabbis and the teachers and the fathers, which, again, that can be, be confusing because what's wrong with a rabbi and what's wrong with, with a teacher? And what we need to understand is at this time in Jewish culture, in Jesus' day, rabbi had become more of an honorific title. It didn't carry the same understanding of teacher or rabbi like we understand it today. Eugene Boring, in his commentary in the New Interpreter's, New Interpreter's Bible Commentary, says, Rabbi in Jesus' day had become a generic honorific title, but the restructuring of Judaism after 70 AD, or CE, there was a tendency to restrict it to the official teachers of formal Judaism. So today we understand that rabbi means a teacher of formal Judaism, but it wasn't always the case in Jesus' day. So that's why he's saying don't be like the rabbi. It's not a, a, a neglect or disrespect for the rabbi. And then he says, you don't uh, call anyone on earth father. And that seems strange too. Well, why wouldn't we call our earthly fathers or why those in the Catholic tradition? Why wouldn't you call uh, a priest father? But again, it's the same thing to keep in mind. Jesus is not talking about your earthly father. Some of these religious leaders, they wanted to be referred to as father because it was another honored title. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't give them those titles. Don't give them those titles. 
It's much like we discussed when we looked at the book of Hebrews that Jesus is above the prophets. Jesus is above Moses. Jesus is above the angels. And, and here in Jesus' teaching days before the cross, that, he's, that is what he's reminding them and teaching them. That no one is above Jesus, the Messiah. And we're going to see that when we go to the text. And finally, as we conclude from this text, we'll see that Jesus is giving the instructions, probably specifically to the disciples, of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and and how you're not to live like the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. So in respect and reverence to the gospel of our Lord, will you please stand for the scripture reading this morning. Then Jesus said to the crowd and his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything that they tell you. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they are not willing to lift a finger to help move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love to be in the places of honor at banquets and sit in the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers and sisters. And do not call anyone father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, For you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word has gone out. And now by the power of your Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts and lives that we might be forever changed. We pray these things now in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And amen. Do everything that they tell you. The law of Moses, the symbolic seed of Moses, had still importance and power. For Jesus did not come to abolish the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And the law of Moses that was passed down to Joshua and then to the religious leaders of the day, generation after generation after generation, was still important, was still vital. And so Jesus was saying, be, be sure to honor that. Be sure to respect that. But do not do as the teachers of the law and the Pharisees do. For they do not practice what they preach. So we don't, maybe some of you have seen an Orthodox Jewish rabbi wear a phylactery or a teflon is another word for it. But we don't see that today in our culture or in our tradition. But there are still some things that have Um, As I was reflecting on this text and spending quite a bit of time with it, it, I was reminded when I was in uh, Panama City after the school year ended last year, I went to uh, uh, Panama City and um, stayed at family members have a place there. And I was sitting on the beach and I was uh, reading, I don't remember, I'm sure it was the Bible, but I was reading on the beach and 
uh, I noticed there were a lot of young people, some college age, a group of maybe 15 or 20, and I, I couldn't tell if they were high schoolers that were like celebrating the end of the school year. I couldn't tell if they were college kids. I, I, I couldn't really tell their age. It's tough for me to gauge how old they are the older I get. But one of them, I noticed, uh, had Colossians 3.23 tattooed uh, up his side in like big, bold block letters. I mean, like started his hip and just went all the way up. And now I know some of you uh, tattoo Bible verses on, on your body and, or different parts so that you see it and then you're reminded of it and, and it'd be a testimony. But I don't know how he could like see his or like if he just like looked under his arm on a regular basis. I didn't know why he got it there and why it was a 50-point block font. I really didn't. I was a little surprised. <laughs> So it, it kind of it stood out to me. You know, I, I was like, well, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting phylactery, I guess. You know, it's, he's putting the scripture, uh, on, though it wasn't on the side of his heart, it was on the other side. And, and, and I thought that was interesting. And, of course, first I thought Edie would kill me if I ever did that. That, of course, is the first thought that ever went through my mind. But the next thing that I thought was, uh, as I was watching his behavior, um, I, and they were just kind of 30 yards down from me, and I'd see him every day for the five or six days that I was there, and... And his, his routine, his day was the same. And he was uh, drinking alcohol quite a bit. And uh, while he was, I noticed he'd be smoking regularly. And, and I noticed he'd go into the ocean with a cigarette. And then miraculously, he'd come out without a cigarette. I mean, this was like his regular uh, routine, him and a couple of friends. And, and sometimes he'd go in with a beer can. And miraculously, the beer can would be, be gone as well. And uh, I don't know what trash can is out in the ocean. But he must have, he must have found one. And uh, he... <laughs> And then there was a young lady that was with him, and she at times would have a beer in her hand as well. And, you know, I mean, it was 10 a.m. in the morning, so I guess that's understandable. <laughs> and, and even the way that he treated her, though she wasn't, she appeared to be his girlfriend. You know, I don't, I don't understand all this language of we're talking and we're dating. or I don't, I don't get all what you talk about nowadays, but, but they were obviously together at times, uh, but at times, he was incredibly disrespectful to her, the way he was uh, just hanging all over her and the way he was, uh, you know, just a little too close at times. And she'd kind of laugh and push him away, but then other times she wouldn't. And, and he was really actually incredibly disrespectful to her, though she never, from what I could see, used those words or said that. But he was, he was incredible, incredibly demeaning and belittling to her. And yet, on the side of his body, he has this verse that says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. In big, bold block letters. And he was certainly working hard at some things, but I don't see how any of that was really bringing glory to the Lord. And I don't want to judge this young man just on seeing him a few mornings uh, for four or five days and, uh, last May. But to me, at least from where I could sit, there seemed to be quite a bit of hypocrisy. You can have the Holy Scriptures tattooed on your body, but what is more important is, are you living it? And so as Jesus is talking to these religious leaders, you may have the phylacteries that are wide on your arm, and you may proclaim this word of Moses, which is good, but if you are not living it, you are a hypocrite. And so Jesus warns, do not do as they do. I've come to the conclusion that Christian communities are not really destroyed by outside influences or forces. Christian communities, whether church or schools or organizations, though there may be attacks from the outside, it is not the outside attacks that destroy us. It's the hypocrisy within. 
That is what destroys us. That is what hurts the message and testimony of Jesus Christ in our lives. So Jesus warns them, do not live a life of hypocrisy. Don't destroy the Christian community and Christian witness. There are certainly things that are destructive even to our community. But those of you who claim the name of Christ, but live as hypocrites, are the most destructive. So don't live a life of hypocrisy. Jesus goes on to talk about these Pharisees and these religious leaders were scheming and maneuvering for power and seats of recognition. The phylacteries were, were wide. They made them really large so people could see. They, they wanted to be at the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues, which would have been up front at, at the front of the table and at the front of the synagogue. And Jesus is saying, don't live in such a way. Don't live in such a way. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is at another meal setting where he talks about as followers of Christ, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, you are to take the lowest place. Which is not if a table in ancient setting would be in a U shape, so the host would sit at the base of the U, if you will, and the most honored guest on his or her left or right, and then on, on down the line, and those at the lowest place would be the lowest place. But Jesus is not just talking about the lowest place of the table. He's talking about the person, the individual that's even at the end of that table, the servant. So Jesus calls to take the lowest place. So he's warning the crowds and disciples, do not be maneuvering for power or the most important seat. And it's like he's giving these instructions to the disciples, but he's also, I think, warning the crowd. And in many ways trying to instruct the crowd, do not let the hypocrites that you see in the faith, do not let the hypocrites you see in the faith, do not let those you see in the faith maneuvering for power and recognition, don't let them deter you from choosing to follow me. Because though the message at times, what they proclaim is true, they are not living it. So Jesus' warning to the crowd, I believe, those who have not yet decided to follow us, to teach them, just because there are those who do not represent the Messiah the way they should, does not mean that the Messiah has not come to redeem and save you. So Jesus is warning about wanting power and seats of recognition to be next to really important people. Uh, Last April, I was invited to be part of a, a small group, maybe there were eight or ten of us, And the title of the group is Young Christian Academic Leaders. I stress the word young, (laughs) though I am the oldest in the group. We were invited uh, by Duke Divinity School. Greg Jones, uh, dean and then a vice president there, um, wants to invest in young Christian academic leaders. Many of them, most of us, I think, in the group uh, have been through seminary. Uh, Many are now teaching in different uh, Christian institutions or organizations and Many have gone through the academic route, some are chaplains, just, just different, different ways. And it's been great to be there. We, I was there again this week, and I'll be there and again in April for, for three sessions on, on uh, the future of Christian higher education and leadership. But this time, we were really treated to a special treat where we were to have dinner uh, Tuesday night at a really, really nice restaurant, a restaurant that I could not afford to take Edie to. And I thought, wow, this is great. So, of course, I ordered the most expensive thing on the menu because I know I'd never be at a restaurant like that again. And uh, so I, I ordered the most expensive thing on the menu. I made sure, got my order in uh, right away for that. So I'm glad I represented ENC in a, in a good way there. Um, I, uh, but the one we were having dinner with around this, in this back private room was Dr. Nathan Hatch, who's the president of Wake Forest University. 
And Wake Forest is not defined as a Christian institution, though they have Christian roots in the Baptist church, but he himself is a devout, he's a devout Christian. He's, uh, in, uh, he was the first Protestant to ever be the provost at Notre Dame University. He was provost there for many years. He's, he's chair of the NCAA Division I conference currently. And, uh, but he's also a church historian, a very renowned and respected uh, historian. And he wrote a book called The Democratization of American Christianity. And as I was reading about him before we were having dinner, just like, All right, who's this guy we're having dinner with? The book was chosen in a survey of 2,000 historians and sociologists as one of the two most important books in the story of American Christianity history. So this is a very influential, influential guy, powerful guy. And of course, my first thought was, I'm going to get a selfie with him. But I refrained and knew the president of our institution would be mortified if I did that. So I didn't do that. And as we were sitting around the table, he ended up sitting right across from me, but I knew some of the others in the program were actually church history majors and studied church history. And, and I thought, you know, I, as much as I want to hear about leadership, they may talk about his work, and he still is just a very renowned scholar as well as a great leader. I, I, I wish I could tell you it was the Christian in me. It's like, well, I'll take the lowest place. Uh, but I knew that there were others that would really want to be in conversation with him, so I just moved a few chairs down. And also, I, didn't, I was scared that he was going to ask me what I thought of his book. And the fact that I hadn't read his book uh, was why I moved to the end of the table, because I didn't want to be put on, on the spot like that. But I'll, I'll read his book at some point. So I ended up moving to a, a lower place, and there were two empty seats next to me, and um, we were getting ready, getting ready to have dinner. And I was disappointed in the week in one thing, and that my friend Jonathan wasn't there. And Jonathan worked for Duke Leadership Education, and I met him when I was there in April. And in a time of prayer, just there were two or three of us as we broke up into groups to pray, uh, he had been married for four months, got married in January, and on coming back from his honeymoon, uh, he learned or his wife was diagnosed with cancer, right just a week or two after coming back from their honeymoon. And there have been times in my life where the Lord has impressed upon me to pray for someone, though I don't really know them. I mean, certainly prayed for her in that moment. I remember when I was your age, I prayed for a girl at a different school that I never met and never knew. Um, her name was Amy, and she had cancer. And for a year, I prayed for her regularly. And I can't explain why, other than the Lord just impressed it upon me to pray for her regularly. She unfortunately lost her battle to cancer. And I remember in that year, that year and a half that I was praying for, I couldn't understand why the burden was so heavy to pray. I never knew her. I never met her. Uh, I know who her parents are. They're leaders in the church. But I still, to this day, have not mentioned how her, their daughter made an impact on my prayer life. And the only way I can describe is after I was speaking to Jonathan was it was impressed upon me to pray for them and to pray for his wife, Beth. And, and so I prayed for Beth. And it wasn't every day, but I pray for her often because they're just a couple years older than you, this, this young married couple. And I think maybe it's because they reminded me of so many of you that it was just impressed upon me to pray for her often and pray for both of them. So I was disappointed that, that Jonathan wasn't there because I was worried I'd never get a chance to get an update on how Beth was doing or what the status was. And I didn't want to ask anyone because I didn't know if other people knew. And Jonathan, I later learned, moved into the dean's office where he's an assistant to, to Dean Richard Hayes. And so I didn't think I'd, I'd get an update and was disappointed by that. But as we're sitting at this dinner and I'm moving to a lower place, again, just to give others an opportunity to have, have conversation with one that they've read and, and really look up to. And, and I need to say that, that President Hatch was really just a humble, humble Christian man. They said uh, Dr. Hatch's daughter's coming to dinner with her husband. 
And I looked over to Dr. Jones, who was leading the dinner. I said, Dr. Jones, why don't I move even to the lower place, to the end, and so his daughter can be close. He says, no, no, don't, don't worry about it. Just sit there. And Dr. Hatch says, no, no it's fine. I'm, I'm going to talk to him afterwards. And they came in a few minutes later, and Dr. Hatch's daughter walks in and ends up sitting next to me. I said, hi, my name's Corey. And she said, hi, I'm Beth. And then in her husband, Jonathan, walks and sits right across the table from me. And I looked at her and I said, please forgive me, but I need to know how you're feeling. And then I went to quickly explain. I said, I don't mean to be too personal, but I've, I've been praying for you and my wife has, has been praying for you. And, and I'm just curious how you're doing or how we can continue to pray. And I was a little worried that, I mean, that's a really, really personal question right away. She knew me for five, five seconds. <laughs> and... Uh, she didn't seem offended and has since told me she wasn't at all, in fact, delighted that I asked because now that she's back finishing her own divinity school at, at Duke, um, she, people know she'd been away for a while, not sure. She's like, so people are scared to ask. And she says, like, sometimes I wish they would, so I'm, I'm glad that you asked. And she said, I am cancer-free. And I, yeah, I give God praise for that. And she goes in, she goes in for some scans once a month and continue to keep her in thought and prayer. You know, there were more important people at the table that night. And I certainly, and probably have done in the past, scheme and maneuver my way to places to get that selfie, or to meet someone, or to say, I had dinner with. But there is not another chair at that table I would have wanted to be at. I use that to say, you do not need to maneuver and scheme. Allow God to guide and direct your steps. That does not always mean that at every dinner table you'll be next to a person that will be a tremendous blessing to you like Beth was to me. In fact, at times you will end up next to people and you'll be like, Lord Jesus, why am I next to this individual? But you can rest assured. You can rest assured that if you live your life like Jesus did, being the servant, being willing to take the lowest place, being willing to care and pray for others, He will lead and guide and direct your steps, and God's ways are always perfect. So do not live a life looking for power or prestige or making sure you meet the right people. Let God lead and guide and direct your life. So don't live a life of hypocrisy. Don't live a life of longing for power. Instead, live a life at the lowest place. Live a life like Jesus lived, as a servant who began his life at the lowest place in a manger. Live your life modeling the life and love of Jesus. And that is this message that Jesus is proclaiming in the last week of his life. It's like he's almost pleading with the crowd and his disciples. Don't live a life of hypocrisy. Don't live a life longing for power, recognition, or making sure you get to meet and know the right people. Live a life with one desire to serve and follow after me. And when we, live that, when we live that way, when we live a life of serving and following after Christ, His ways and His will is perfect. So do not live a life of hypocrisy or a life longing for power. Live a life in the lowest place, demonstrating the humility of Christ. And as I shared before in this chapel setting, to be a humble people, we must be a grateful people. For when we recognize that all that we have, that all has been given to us is a gift from God, we recognize what do we have that has not been given to me and we just live a life of praise. So live a life of praise and allow the humility of Christ to transform you. Yes, live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That is what Jesus is talking about at the end of our text today. 
Those who exalt themselves here on earth will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. And true, that is at the eschaton, when we are in heaven, when we are with Christ. Yes, that is, that is an exaltation that will take place. But the kingdom of heaven has already come in Christ Jesus. And, and we get to receive this exaltation now. And that exaltation is to be used by God for his honor and his glory and love. I promise you, there is no greater blessing. There is no greater honor than to be used by God to advance his kingdom, his love, his grace, and his mercy. There is no greater honor. Don't seek for it or search for it anywhere else. That is the greatest honor. And that's what Jesus is is pleading and teaching them here in his final days. That is the blessing. The blessings of the kingdom of heaven can begin now by allowing God to use your life to the fullest. So drawing to a close, I want to ask you this morning, what kind of life do you want to live? Do you want to live a life of hypocrisy? Do you want to live a life longing for power and making sure you meet the right people and prestige and honor? Or do you want to live a life like Jesus lived? Taking the lowest place, the place of a servant. Allowing God to be all in your life so that when people see you, they see the love of Christ. They see the mercy of Christ. They see the grace of Christ. Some of you are so tired. You're so tired. Certainly physically. Certainly emotionally. But some of you are so tired from being a hypocrite. You're exhausted. Don't continue to live that way anymore. And by the grace and power of God through the Holy Spirit, you can transform your life and you can truly live a surrendered life to God and not live in hypocrisy anymore. Some of you are so tired trying to get the prestige or recognition or the honor, and it's wearing you out, and you too are exhausted and tired. And God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can help you release all of that and live your life completely surrendered to Him. The amazing thing about President Hatch is is that he was this incredible man of humility. Incredible humility. And yet, at times, God will call some of us to places of authority, influence, and power. But that's not the call of all of us. The call of all of us whether it be President Hatch or the chaplain at the end of the table, is just to be faithful to all that God calls you to do and to be, whether that's praying for someone you don't even know or leading and directing as God calls you to do. At the close of our dinner together, we had asked him so many questions, Dr. Hatch never got to points he was going to make, but he made one, and I, I wrote them all down, but one that really stood out to me. He said, be good at what you do. Be good and faithful in all that you do. He went on to say, you cannot maneuver or, or work your way into a presidency. It's just something that just naturally happens. He says, but if you do what you do well, if, if you are faithful, whether it's a presidency or whether it's a teaching post, whether it's a chair of a department, whether it's leadership in a church or missionary, do what God has called you to do. Do it well. Do it faithfully. Or as it says in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for the Lord, not human masters. So do not live a life of hypocrisy. Do not live a life longing for power and prestige. Live a life in the lowest place, in the same way that Jesus lived. Let us pray. I want to close chapel this morning just in silent prayer. 
And in the Church of the Nazarene, there is a tradition where some like to come forward and pray at the altar. I know many of you don't, haven't practiced that or haven't seen that. And you're not joining the church or anything, not joining the Church of the Nazarene or anything like that, but sometimes the act of actually getting up out of our seats and kneeling before the Lord, in the same way that Jesus called his disciples publicly, I think there are times in our lives where Jesus wants us to respond publicly, where we actually physically make a response. And so if that is the case for anyone that might be in this chapel this morning, this altar is open if you'd like to come and pray. And for others who may not feel led to come forward and pray, in a silence beyond words, I challenge you today to confess. If you have not been living the life that God has called you to be living, if you have been more interested in your own prestige and power than you have been in proclaiming the power of Christ. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you forgive me for the times I've schemed and maneuvered for a place of recognition or power. And while I claim to be follower of Christ, I know there have been times where my witness has not been faithful to that end. And I'm thankful, I'm thankful, Lord, this morning that your grace is sufficient and that your grace is so powerful we don't need to go down the list and check off all those times or try to remember, remember them all necessarily, but just to receive your grace. And so I pray for everyone in this room this morning, that they be open and receiving your grace and your mercy, and may they know that they are forgiven. And I pray that all of us, Lord, as we leave this sanctuary this morning and go to class and go into our weekend, that by your power, we can live our lives in a way that does not draw attention to ourselves, but only points to you and your kingdom. By your spirit, I pray, Lord, that you help us to go in that power.